Thank you, Doc, for reading it. Well done. Now then, what do we say about these things? Um, I think the first thing to do is to make sure we understand, as it were, the context as to where this comes in Mark's Gospel. So, um, if you've been here during the uh, preceding weeks, you will see that Mark's Gospel has um, uh, flowed through a number of miracles. Um, We had a a fairly famous declaration by Peter halfway through the Gospel, um, where uh, Peter declared that Jesus was um, the Messiah, um, and that sort of echoes the start where in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, um, it's, it's the narrator that declares that this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then halfway through, you get it on Peter's lips. And then at the end, at the, at the um, crucifixion, it, that same statement is on the lips of the um, centurion um, who, who has watched the death of Jesus. Um, so that's 539, 15.39. Surely this man was the Son of God. So you've got a progression from narrator knowing everybody, everything, to the disciples knowing enough about Jesus, to this Gentile knowing enough about Jesus to declare that he was the Son of God. Um, and that's kind of that gradual revelation that you get in Mark's Gospel. Um, in this particular section, um, Jesus has already made it into Jerusalem. Um, that's chapter 11. It's, you know, the whole donkey thing, the whole Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and, and we're in that bit between arriving in Jerusalem, as it were, on Palm Sunday, and um, Last Supper, which is at... Um, uh, halfway through chapter 14, which is the Thursday night. So kind of we've, Mark has pitched this in that final week before you get to the point of the Last Supper. Does that make sense? So we kind of like Tuesday night or Tuesday afternoon or something like that. Tuesday tea time. Think of it that way. Um, and we've got... I think, to my mind, the key to understanding this is understanding the difference between these things and that day. And at the moment, you might think, what? What do you mean by that? So these things are the things that point you to the destruction of the temple, and that day being code for that day when Jesus will return again. Okay? And it feels to me that it's it's fairly... um, interwoven the comments about these things and that day um, especially towards the, towards the end of the, of the chapter and we'll come to that in a few minutes but um, that, that's kind of worth bearing in mind that there is, there is two horizons if you like two event horizons in, in Jesus' mind and he kind of switches between one and the other and at this point I'm just going to tell you I'm really hot and that might resolve the problem there we go right um so other texts that might help us here, um, we need to recognise that Luke um, has a fairly parallel version of this at uh, Luke chapter 21, um, which if you're going to do real justice to this, we, you could read as that as well, but I'll, I'll spare you that um, for tonight. Um, the other thing is that um, many commentators reckon that the beginning of 2 Thessalonians 2 um, is worthy of of note. Um, 2 Thessalonians is generally reckoned to be the first uh, of the written texts after Jesus' 
death and resurrection. Um, and so the earliest thinking about the future um, comes in, in Thessalonians. Uh, so 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4, let me read that to you. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word or mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So, uh, history for you. Um, in uh, AD, <clears throat> find the right bit of my notes, AD 68, give or take. Um, so, the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed and some would... Um, there's, there's, there's a number of different arguments as to why it was destroyed um, but at that point there had been some um, what are called zealots so um, basically how would you describe them Jewish revolutionaries terrorists who wanted to um, wrest control of Jerusalem back from the Romans who were of course only the occupying forces um, and they'd done some fairly nasty things in and around Jerusalem, including apparently murdering a few people inside the temple uh, and uh, kind of running through the Holy of Holies, which is really not hopeful. But that's quite a struggle to reconcile with, their underst- with that understanding that they were Jewish zealots, that they were wanting purity for the nation. So there's a question about whether that historical kind of statements have been... Um, written by the opposition that perhaps don't want to give them any... They want to discredit them. So the other way of thinking about that is that once the Romans sacked um, uh, the temple uh, and tore down all the stones, so they then started putting up a statue to Caesar uh, in the Holy of Holies and so on like that. So so there was a destruction uh, of the temple in around AD 68. Uh, and, uh, And in 2 Thessalonians, clearly that is still to come. That stuff about the man of lawlessness is revealed, the rebellion occurs, the man doomed to destruction, that for the Thessalonians is, is still a future event. And, these, and, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, he wrote this second letter to Thessalonica, basically are going, hang on a minute, Jerusalem isn't destroyed, therefore God isn't, Jesus isn't going to come back yet. But Because it's going to be first Jerusalem, the temple destroyed, and then the return of Jesus. Now... Interesting, because Jesus at one point says um, things like, you know, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it again, offering very much a spiritual um, rethinking, effectively, of the place of temple. So the three days referencing Jesus' death to Jesus' resurrection. Um, And so Jesus as the temple, as the dwelling place of God um, put a new spin on what, would, what it meant to tear down the temple uh, at, at one point. But let's stick with our text, let's stick with chapter 13 um, of Mark's Gospel. Um, verses 1 to 4 happen at a different time to verses 5 onwards. Uh, well, verses 1 to 2 even. Um, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings! 
Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's, to most people, referencing that destruction of the temple which happened in, in AD 68. Um, and then, separately, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew... Notice we caricature it as Jesus with the three or the twelve or the seventy-two, and we don't often get the four. That's not a common number that we, we tend to think about in the Gospels of, of disciples, but it's just an interesting aside, really. But Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So when and what should we look out for to know that it's going to happen, that it's about to happen? Um, Jesus responds, um, and really that response in, in speech terms is right through to the end of the chapter. Um, but in terms of subject, that first response goes to the end of verse 23. Um, and as you saw as we were reading it, that Jesus doesn't initially answer about the destruction of the temple. So the disciples go, what will be the sign? When, when will these things happen? When will the tearing down of the temple happen? Jesus responds, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and, I, and will deceive many. When you hear wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, and so on and so on. So it's, Jesus isn't, as ever, I think, directly answering their question initially. And notice that Jesus as Messiah is not, is not unique to be claiming to be Messiah. Yes, he's unique in being the only true Messiah, but there were other prophets, Messiahs, people who claimed to be Messiah who turned out to be false Messiahs. So, um, for example, if you um, choose to flick forward to Acts chapter 5, you'll see that Acts chapter 5, 35 onwards, reads like this. Um, this is uh, Gamaliel, the um, uh, Pharisee, a teacher of the law, honoured by all the people, stood up and said this. Um, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, that is a Messiah, uh, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his people were scattered. Um, the argument goes on, basically, if this is from God, you won't be able to stop them, and if they're not from God, they'll just, you know, they'll go to nothing anyway. Um, which was a very wise speech, but nobody really listened to him. Um, it's a great shame. But anyway... Um, but that sense of reflecting on history, that there were others that wanted um, to be the Messiah in the sense of a saviour, a political saviour. Somebody to kick out the Romans. Because frankly, life was a bit horrible under the Romans. You know, you had to pay your taxes and you had to pay the bit extra for the, the turncoat who had decided to, you know, to help the Romans. And then you had to be willing to carry... You know, anything a soldier asked you to, one mile. Or when Jesus said, hey, why don't you carry it two miles? Just to shame them. Um, you know, there was quite not nice under the Romans. Um, it wasn't freedom in that sense, uh, in any sense. And so there was, there was inevitably, I think, a number of people who came along going, hey, let's try and kick out the Romans. Um, and eventually they did, but not for ages. 
So let's go back. Where were we? Acts, Acts, no, Mark, Mark 13. Here we are. Um, many will come in my name claiming I am he, I will deceive many, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars, rumours of wars, um, Interesting to see how verses 9, 10, 11 um, sort of pan out in terms of how we see that happening in terms of Acts and and some of those chapters of Acts about being handed over to local councils, flogged in the synagogues, um, standing before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Um, But the gospel must be first preached to all nations. And still we hang on to that, don't we? There is that sense in which we go, but we haven't translated the Bible into every language. Therefore, the second coming can't come. Do you think that? Is that not really into your consciousness very often? There's some people out there that think that. They go, oh, you know, there isn't yet basically a Christian in every tribe and language and nation. Therefore, the second coming can't come because otherwise... When you get to heaven, there won't be people from every nation. Mmm. Pauline's looking at me, wide-eyed. As if to go, ooh! That's an exciting one. Um, so, which, which, which the, 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 um, the tease in me says, okay, does that mean then that we need to evangelize all but one nation so that then we can do the proper job on all the other nations and then eventually we'll go and evangelize the last nation because then after that, after that, so the second coming could happen. God is God. Sorry? Absolutely. Because God can reveal himself in dreams and visions. It's not up to our, not necessarily up to our, our speaking out um, that brings people to know Jesus. So let's keep moving. Um, Faith is divisive, verse 12, 13. Um, brother will depraved brother to death. The father is child. Children will be rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Well, we have to pray. I pray that doesn't happen in my day. Um, but everyone will hate you because of me. There is that sense in which our faith makes us countercultural. We don't fit in. Um, and that's quite unnerving at times because we want to fit in. We want to be like everybody else. But that's not what we're called to be. Now, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand. Well, the reader has to understand by reading Daniel. Um, Daniel, book of prophecy from the Old Testament. Daniel, um, another one of those that's really hard to understand, to get your head round. Um, but Daniel mentions three times the abomination that causes desolation. So, uh, let me read you the three verses. Daniel 9, verse 27. Um, this is part of a vision about what will happen in the future uh, and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Um, I have to admit, I'm not quite sure who he is. Anyway, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven in the middle of the seven. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Um, Go figure. 
um, uh, chapter 11, verse 31. His armed forces will rise up to, to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And chapter 12, verse 11 runs like this. From that time, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of your days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Great. Thanks, Daniel. Um... The point is, I think, that the abomination that causes desolation is about something other than worship of God happening in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So a statue or some kind of pagan worship that, um, that clearly desecrates that holy space. Um, I, I think that's what we're going where we're going down on that one um and so if you like it it's a deliberate echo back to daniel daniel was still one of the few books of prophecy that had yet any sense of feeling to be fulfilled by the time of jesus is coming you could argue forever that some of it had been and some of it hasn't been, but that's, that's the nature of prophecy for you. Um, but I think there's a deliberate echo back to Daniel that actually this ties back to Daniel. A bit like, um, a bit like linking John the Baptist as Elijah, for example. There's a sort of new name, but, but same purpose type thing. Um, So that paragraph around the abomination that causes desolation and the not going down to the housetops, not entering the house, pray that it comes in, not in winter, that, I think, is all about the destruction of the temple. And probably the next bit is as well. Verse 20 to 23. Um, It's verse 24 to 27 that becomes much more a thinking about the return of Jesus. So in those days, following that distress, so after the desolation, the desecration, the destruction even of the temple, find a long word beginning with D, um, after that, then the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The sun, stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Which, as you all know, is a reference to both Isaiah 13.10 and Isaiah 34.4. Another one of those books of prophecy that we all struggle to get our heads around. Because I think the point with prophecy is it's quite hard to know what it's meaning until you can look back and go, yeah, that's what it means. But when we're still looking at stuff that's still to be fulfilled, it's quite hard to go, well, this is what it means. Because it's not obvious. <coughs> Half the time. Most of the time it's not obvious. Um, so quite what, will, what really happens when the sun is dark and the moon doesn't give its light, the stars fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken, is that Isaiah's description of a meteorite? 
you know, like they all think happened when the dinosaurs died. Did I say dinosaurs in church? I did. <gasps> um, but, but, you know, you, I think you get the picture. That, that, that sense of, or is that about, you know, um, you think of some of those descriptions of what happens when there's a massive volcano. Think even of what happened in Iceland. Was that three, four, five years ago now? How the planes didn't fly because there was ash clouds all over the show and, you know, the global temperature dropped. Was that because the planes didn't fly or not? I don't remember now. Um, You know, there was all sorts of of weirdness and that was all just from one little volcano. Well, it wasn't that little actually. Um, But from one one volcano erupting. Um, And you can imagine if you get volcanoes going off that you might well get lava clouds in the sky and the sun is darkened and the moon doesn't give its light and... Mm, and stars fall from the sky. Not sure how that works. But anyway, you, you can see what I'm getting at, is that there's, there, there could be a number of interpretations as to how that becomes fulfilled. But however it's fulfilled, notice verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of the heavens. I think that's gathering them from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, as far as the end of the heavens. Not that he will gather them to the ends of the earth, ends of the heavens, but he will gather them from all sorts of places. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? At that time, the people, of the, the people will see the Son of Man, which Jesus has self-referred to himself as the Son of Man quite a lot in the Gospels, um, coming in clouds with great power and glory. That has to be a description of the return of Jesus. You know, and we still sing about it, don't we? And we shall see him in the air. I can't remember how it goes anymore. And we should know it. We will be like him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, but but we, we still sing about that return of Jesus, don't we? Um, and there's echoes of this we see in uh, Revelation um, uh, about how Jesus will come back to earth. So that's, that's 24 to 27 is about the cosmic signs associated with that day, that is the return of Christ. And then... Slightly, and I think very bemusingly, I think we turn back in time to verses 28 to 31. Is about these things. So verse 30. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. So let me read you verse 28 onwards. Now this lesson from the fig tree, as soon as its twigs... No, sorry. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree... As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will, but my words will never pass away. And then notice the contrast, verse 32. But about that day, no one knows. And that's why I think I can draw a contrast between these things and that day. 
And so at verse 28 and verse 30, when it's referencing these things, I think that's about the destruction of the temple rather than about the return of Jesus. And you may choose to disagree with me. Uh, But it does mean that you can then say that this generation will not pass away until these things, that is the destruction of the temple has happened, becomes a distinct possibility. Jesus is standing in AD 30, talking to this generation that is listening to him, And by AD 68, the temple is destroyed. Now, obviously, individuals within that generation that were listening to him will have died. But not all of, but there will be some, there would be some, I think, that were eyewitnesses to what Jesus said that would then still be alive when the temple was destroyed 38 years later, give or take. Does that make sense? Anne's looking at me as if to go, no, my brain's fried. Is it okay? We all right making sense there? So that, that's one way of thinking about that. You, clearly you can choose to argue with me, and you can argue that this generation is much more about something else. It's about these people, this people group, these, these followers of mine. But generation, well, anyway, there you go. That's how I read it. That 28 to 31 takes you back to these things. And then Jesus draws a contrast again at verse 32 of, but about that day, and that day being that code for that return of Jesus, no one that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, and... Each of their tasks, in other words, don't be caught napping when Jesus comes back. I'm tempted to reference, I think there's an old advert, isn't there, that says something like, quick, look busy, Jesus is coming. Um, um, So therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in evening at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. So watch. I say to you, everyone, watch. And I think there is that sense in which, although this has been quite a technical, I hesitate to call it discussion, but anyway, let's call it that. Um, There is that sense in which we are called to live each day as if it might be the day that Jesus returns. Although practically we also need to plan to recognize that possibly it isn't going to be and therefore that sense of going to work, that sense of earning money that we then spend next month, that sense of planning for retirement is still a sensible thing to do. But certainly in terms of our relationship with Jesus, we're called to keep watch, to keep alert, to keep aware of that possibility and I guess therefore that then flows into our relationships with other people would you want 
to find that the day of the return of the Lord has come and you've had a major argument that's unresolved with X or Y or Z. Um, but you see what I'm getting at. Um, would you want, you know, when you can, you can mix and match here. You could say, uh, you know, in the same way, we don't know when we're going to die. Uh, and in terms of our own experience of earth, actually you can merge the two horizons. You can say that our death and the return of Christ have the same effect for us. We're not going to be on earth anymore. Well, hmm, we will in a very new way when it comes to the, to the return of Jesus. But uh, practically. So how we live our lives in that sense of Yes, forgive us our sins as we forgive others actually is really quite important. That sense of staying close to Jesus, continuing to be fed. Um, we talked a bit this morning about um, you can't make a plant grow, but you can give it the right conditions for growth. Um, and we could think of us as a plant and actually what conditions are we living in? Are we living in a place that is an equivalent of light and warmth and good soil or are we in a place that's full of weeds that's in soil that needs feeding that's in really dry soil do we need to help ourselves to grow by reading by praying by saying sorry by living as if today might be the last day that we're on earth because actually only the father knows when that day will be that day let's pray friends father thank you that you're in charge that you know when the last day will be Give us grace, I pray, to live each day in the light of your love, but to of your clear, declared intention to end the present arrangements on earth. Lord, I'm reminded of Paul's phrase about being all things to all people so that by some means, some might be saved. And I pray that that would be so for us, that we would do all that we possibly can to enable others to discover your love, to live our lives in the light of your love with conditions that enable us to grow in you. Amen.